Hey guys, Ryan DeMint from Chasing Happiness Podcast. I hope you guys are having a great day. On the podcast today, we have Gregory Offner. And a little bit about Gregory is he is the founder and CEO of Global Performance Institute, a researcher and an award-winning keynote speaker. As the creator of the Tip Jar Culture, Greg helps transform the employee experience, or as he likes to say, take the irk out of work. We got to talk about that. That's pretty cool. And his impressive roster of clients include everything from Fortune 100 corporations to local chapters of associations. Gregory, welcome to the show. And thanks for coming back on. I know we had some technical difficulties the first time, but yeah. honored to have yeah, you we, on. We made it. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's great to be here. You're more than welcome. So before we get into your journey and the tip jar culture, and I like take the irk out of work. Just a little bit about yourself, whatever you want to share, and then we'll just get right into it and dive deep. Sure. I live in Philadelphia. I've been here pretty much all my life, a bit of time in the suburbs. I got a beautiful family. When I'm not doing the work that I do and what we're going to talk about today, I love to play ice hockey or go to stand-up comedy shows. And I'm very much looking forward to the summer. I'm already done with the cold, done with waking up and going to bed in the dark. I'm ready for more data. I'm with you. So are you a native to Pennsylvania or have you lived other places? That's the thing, Ryan. If you're from the Philly area, you know that most people who say they're from Philly aren't from Philly. I grew up outside of Philly in the suburbs in a town called Lansdale. Grew up coming to work every once in a while with my dad. And I thought the commute in was super cool and that the big buildings were super cool and wanted to one day live in Philly. In about 2008, I bought a home in the city and we've lived here in Philadelphia. You hear me? Hear me, Pennsylvanians? In <laughs> Philadelphia for since. That's cool. I lived almost 12 years in Delaware, so I know the area pretty well. So it's that's cool. But I got to ask the question, what keeps you there if the cold is so trying at times? Ryan, I was in Arizona two weeks ago doing an event, and I met someone who was, I want to say, from Minnesota and had moved to Austin, Texas. I said, that's interesting. Why did you move? And she gave me the best answer I think that exists. And she said, because I learned weather is a choice. Ah, weather it is. is. A choice. I tried to explain that to my wife, but we've got huge family, both of us extended family here. And I think that's really what keeps us. It's interesting. It's an interesting phenomenon. Most Northeasterners, yeah. So from say like Vermont down to probably Delaware. We just stay where we're planted. It seems like the rest of the country moves a lot, but we all tend to just go, yep, this is where I'm from. This is where I am. This is, I don't know why I turned into a Chicago person all of a sudden, but this is where I'm from. This is where I am. And this is where I'll always be. So who knows? Maybe moving one day is in the cards. We're both, uh, Kim and I, my wife are both musical. So we'd love to live maybe in Nashville, but who knows? That, but at least you're true to your roots and you're living somewhere where you're enjoying it. Sounds like you got a lot of things. I love Philly food. And who does not like food in Pennsylvania because the food is phenomenal? Yeah, we've got I, the Philly cheesesteaks here in the middle. We've got the Pennsylvania Dutch with all of their crazy deep fried stuff and farm mm -hmm. food and all that. And I don't really know about Pittsburgh. I don't really know what their thing is. <laughs> I don't know. I know that they call soda pop. And I'm not yes. sure that I'm down with that. But um there is a, and I never got to get out there, but I remember there being some type of restaurant that's been around since the early 1900s in Pittsburgh that's known for their dipped hamburgers, where they're dipping it in grease from the early 1900s, and it's supposed to be the best thing since hamburgers were made. 
but I can't remember the name of it. But is the for Greece the life itself of the- from the 1900s? Because I think I'm out. Yeah. If that's the case, if this is that- Greece they've had. <laughs> we they we made this when Lincoln was president. I know that's the 1800s. People don't send me hate mail. <laughs> yes, they save a portion of it and put it into the grease traps or whatever they're working on, and that's how they're cooking half of that or cooking that hamburger. I don't know. I don't huh. remember the, all the story. I just was told about it and never got there, but it was very interesting to know that they were saving Greece from the 1900s. That was, it was eh, interesting. All right, Pennsylvania fun. And you almost forgot the whoopie pies. Those are also yeah. there. I love yeah. the whoopie pie. Oh, those are really good. So a little bit about what got you into what you were doing. Talk a little bit about your journey and then the surgeries you had. Yeah. I really want to dive into that and understand how that happened. Yeah, so what got me here is those surgeries. What got me to the surgeries is a different story. I came out of college with this odd hodgepodge of academic degrees in philosophy, psychology, music. That was my core focus, those three elements. And didn't really have a job lined up because who does? I mean, with that as their focus. And I fell into a role in sales. So that was my day job, right? I was out there, donned a suit and tie, like an actor dons their costume every morning and pretended that I was this corporate type and went out. And I did enjoy parts of the job. I did. And I learned a lot. But it was never really what I wanted to do. I just happened to be good at it. And so I kept doing it because they kept paying me. And sales pays pretty good when you're good at it. But at night, very quickly, I found my happy place. And that was the piano bar. I started working at a small piano bar on a very nondescript, hard-to-find corner in Philadelphia. And that's where I gained a few mentors and honed my skills and then slowly started to expand from just solo piano bar work in Philadelphia to piano bars across the country. And then ultimately this interesting world of dueling piano bars, which is a totally different discipline. It's a completely different experience. It's like if you play tennis, it's like singles and doubles. A lot of the same strokes, but a wholly different experience to watch and to play. So for about 15 years, I had this sort of dual life where during the day I'd go to work and do as as little as I could to make as much as I could. But then at night, I went all out and I loved what I did at the piano bars. And some of these nights, some of these shifts were three to five hours of singing. So a very heavy vocal load on your voice, more than normal. And during the day, sales is a very vocally intensive job as well. Should mention that I also like to go out and party with my friends on the weekends. So I was often the loudest guy in the loudest bars throughout Philadelphia. All of that kind of came to a head in 2015. And I developed vocal cord injuries that doctors said, if I didn't take immediate and really drastic action, I would lose the ability not just to sing, because they said that ship had sailed. At this point, I lost my voice during a performance, and doctors said, "You don't, we don't think it's ever coming back. Your singing voice, as you know it, is gone. But they said, if you don't take that drastic action now, your speaking voice is next. And we estimate you've got about two months until your wow. voice is completely and permanently paralyzed. Never get it back. There's no transplant that they can give you of someone else's vocal cord. That's it. And I just want to impress upon everyone, maybe think about whatever the last word or conversation is that you had with a loved one. Imagine that's the last time they ever heard your voice. We, We often hear that sort of imagine if, 
in the context of you could die, right? We could all die at any given point in time. And so what if that was the last conversation? I think it's a little more brutal to still be here, but not be able to say what you want to say. And so I lived that experience for several years because I had to undergo vocal cord surgery and that required complete and total silence. And so while I'm interacting with friends, like I'm physically present, I couldn't actually participate. And it's real quick, I realized that I don't want to take away from the seriousness of death. I'm glad that I didn't get a terminal diagnosis, but for a professional voice user, for me, that was a death-like experience. When I say I, I think it's worse, it's like if I'm dead, like I don't care what happens next. But if I still have to be here and I can't participate, almost like I have to watch life go on, but I can't be a part of it. I'm just watching all of it. That to me felt worse. And over the course of several of these surgeries, I sunk into a pretty deep depression. And I was withdrawing from all of the friends and activities and things that, that, that made me. I felt like I had lost me. And along the way, I met a guide, let's call her, because she's a complete stranger who I ran into at an event. We're standing in line at a concession stand at this event. And she turns around and she says, is this your first time here? And I said, yeah. How about you? She said, this is my 10th event. My God. This is a Tony Robbins event, by the way. I'd never wow. been to one before. Never, ever imagined going, but I thought, hey, I'm depressed. I could either go to therapy or I could go to Tony Robbins. And I picked Tony Robbins. <laughs> Turned out to be the right decision because this woman changed my life. The event itself was fun. It was fine. It was great. Great. But what happened with her changed my life. As we started talking and she shared her story, I was dumbfounded because she'd gone through so many challenges and experienced so much adversity in her life and yet was a successful businesswoman, had emigrated from a completely different country and built up an admirable network here in the States. I was floored. And then she goes, Greg, what's your story? And I thought, who cares? I don't want to go after that. The whole, I'm not following that. And she pushed and pressed and said, no, come on, tell me your story. And I thought to myself, I don't know you. I'm never going to see you again. So you know what? I'm just going to unload. I'm going to tell you everything. I'm going to I'm going to unburden myself of all this crap I've been carrying around, all this depression that I'm feeling and dealing with. And who knows, maybe you've got an answer. And as I'm doing this, her eyes start to light up and the smile comes across her face. And she goes, you don't see it, Greg, do you? And I said, I, I don't know. Her name is Svetlana. I said, I don't know, Svetlana, what? What don't I see? And she goes, you don't see that your problem is that you're trying to keep all these different interests and parts of your life in buckets. So you have a bucket for the musical side of you and a bucket for this professional person you're pretending or maybe trying to be. And this bucket, and she went on and she said, I wonder what it would look like if you put all of those into one bucket. And I said, yeah, I wonder that too. Do you have any suggestions? And she put her arm on my shoulder and spun me slightly and pointed toward the stage where Tony Robbins had been speaking like 15 minutes ago. He was on a break right now. And, we were... and she said, what if that is where you belong? What if all of this interest in psychology and persuasion that's gone into your sales work and your studies 
and all of the ordeal you've been through with your voice and understanding what it means to not be fully present and fully participate in what's going on around you. And this performance side of you that loves to be on stage and to entertain and to captivate others. What if that's all supposed to be there? And I get, I get tingles every time I share this story. But in that moment, my body felt electric. I had never considered this possibility. And if I hadn't met Svetlana, I doubt I ever would have. But after the day ended, I went back to my hotel room. And instead of grabbing a drink like I normally would have, I started furiously journaling. Who would I have to be? Like, what are the steps and actions and things I would need to take and change and do in my life to be the type of person that could make that happen? Because my favorite hobby was Netflix, right? That wasn't going to change the course of, and there's nothing wrong with Netflix, but that's, that wasn't going to change me from being this guy who pretended to be a corporate salesman during the day and loved to play piano at night into somebody who was on stage at an event like that. And so I created this list of things. And the first thing I realized I needed to do was figure out if I really even wanted this life. That wasn't something I did when I went into the professional world. I didn't do internships. I didn't talk to people. I was too busy enjoying everything that college had to offer. So what I decided to do was to speak with as many professional coaches and trainers and speakers as I possibly could. And over the next several months, I spoke to about 50. And to a person, they said that the hardest part of their job was sales. Mm. And I thought, ding, ding, Greg, you've been a salesperson. for This is something that you may not like doing for other people, but you're pretty good at. I bet you could do it for yourself. And that's when I knew I could make this transition. I knew I needed help. And I worked with coaches and many amazing people have helped me get where I am. This was not a solo journey. But that was the story of getting from there to here. And now, because of all that, I love what I legitimately love what I do every day, getting to help people and change the companies that they work in, help them take the irk out of work to not go and pretend somewhere and to not just hide in a corner and wait till the dials on the watch says 5 p.m. to actually wake up every day and go out and make an impact and know that the income they want will follow from that. And for the organizations, it's to transform their profitability, to transform the impact they have on the community, on their industry, by transforming the people within the organization. So this whole journey, I got to go all the way back to the beginning. So while you're going through these surgeries, what were you doing for income? I had a very nice employer who allowed me to try to do my job in sales silently. And it kind of worked for a little while. And I will say that when I realized it wasn't working, I went to another employer. And then I went to another employer. I was literally patching it together just to get to a point where my voice was finally in a position where I could, I could make a move. And I will say too, that I didn't know this was the move I was going to make until the very end. So this journey started in 2015. I was in a sales role for an insurance brokerage. I actually did okay in that role. The surgeries themselves, it's, it, it's not like I spent five years, what's that Tom Cruise movie, eight years in Tibet. It's not like I spent five years in total silence. I would have a period of two or three weeks where I had to be completely silent and then six or seven months where my voice was in rehab and recovery. So I wouldn't be able to have a conversation for longer than five minutes without needing five minutes of silence. 
and then 10 okay. minutes and 10 minutes of silence, then 15 minutes and 10 minutes of silence. And then so working my way up to 40 minute conversation and then 15 minutes of silence. But all of that pulled me out of, I couldn't go to sporting events. I couldn't network. I couldn't do the things outside of making cold calls and sending emails that you really need to be successful in the industry that I was in. And so I didn't have a plan B and piano bar wasn't an option at the point. So when I realized that, hey, they're catching on that I'm not going to make this, I'm not going to be able to make this work. I went on to the next one. And then if those employers are listening, I'm sorry. I am. But that got me here. And it got you here. So then the lady's name was Slipwana. Uh, okay. Friends today still communicate with her? Yeah, we still we still talk. She lives in so she lives in the Poconos. Uh, ah. And and I called her. She went radio silent for a little while. And I think COVID did that to to a lot of us, to maybe all of us. So we lost touch. Called her a couple months back and I just shared. I was like, I just need you to know how much that probably silly conversation to you, how much that changed my life. And it was really cool to, to see how that affected her and to let her know the impact she had. Because that's the funny thing about humanity is that sometimes what seems like an innocuous conversation or comment to us, it's really weighty to somebody else. I have a buddy who we were together for an event several years back, and he was telling me that he was getting engaged, but didn't buy into the whole wedding rigmarole and the cost of getting this venue and the caterers and the this and the that. And I thought, keep in mind, this guy's a CPA, so he's very focused on these types of things. He said, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can buy into that. And I looked at him and I said, Jeff, you get to choose what your life looks like. If you want to rent out a room at Ruth's Chris and invite 30 of your closest friends and just have really nice wine and really delicious steak and that's your wedding, guess what? That's your wedding. I was a glass of wine into that event. So it wasn't you know, like this is critical thinking on my part. This is just conversation. And I come to find out a year later, that's what he decided to do for his wedding. Oh, wow. One of the most important days in his life was the result of an offhanded comment. One of the most important decisions I made in my life was the result of a conversation in line for concession stand. So for me, it's been a tremendous lesson in the power of not only being present when you're speaking to someone, but really speaking to serve and speaking to help. And I think that's when people ask me, how do I become a speaker? Gosh, I'm not good on stage. I remind them, and every time I do, I remind myself, that it's not about me being good on stage. It's about me being there to help the people in the audience. And as long as I'm up there thinking, all right, what's really going to help them right now in the context of this event and why I'm here to speak, it goes well. It's when I start worrying about where am I putting my hand in this moment and what part of the stage should I walk to to make a very important point and I get in my head and then I forget the reason that I'm there. And this is life and we're going into, we can talk about happiness, but we seem to live lives that we, that other people tell us to live, and we don't actually go after what the true life that we want to go after. And that's one of the reasons why I created this podcast. But the other thing is these conversations you've had with these people that have made impact in your life, even though, like you said, they were trivial to them, it was very impactful to you. And we need more of those in our lives because truly... How many of us, and, and unfortunately with the pandemic, I think it caused even more of this to people to be, like you said, be recluse, but also fall into more of that creativity, that less creativity spot to where they're just, 
living life and not actually being happy and going after whatever make whatever makes them happy. Kind of, I had a guest on several months ago and he talked about either you're a couch surfer watching Netflix, use the same thing that you use, Netflix, or you're a climber in life. And it's, we don't, there's nothing in between. It's either you're going to go after the life you want to live or you're not. But it just seems like so many of us are settling for less and not going after it. I, my question to you is, what are your thoughts on that? And then where, where can we help ourselves? Where can we get ourselves back on track and be happy and go after the passions that uh, drive us? Because we yeah, all have that, them. That's, that's a really profound statement, I think, to shorten it, that the couch is more comfortable than the climb. To my experience is that I got sucked into not... I set goals because I wanted other people to think I had good goals. Because okay. in, in college, and even I think for a period growing up, I had some trouble finding my way. I wound up at military school because I had that much trouble finding my way. And military school very clearly tells you what's a good goal and what's not. Someone from the outside externally says, you do this, you get rewarded. You do this, you get punished. Here, here's what living a good life looks like. And then I was thrust into college or I made the choice to go to college into a situation where nobody cares what you do. We got your money. We don't care where you are. No. Yeah. And so that was a really jarring juxtaposition of experiences for me. And I think, I know that instead of defining what I wanted, I looked around at everybody else and I said, oh, I, I guess that looks good. I guess that sounds good. And then I would beta test when I would talk about things that I was doing or was interested in doing, how people around me reacted. If they were in awe or admiring that goal that I just stated, well, I thought maybe that's a good goal. And if we don't define what we want from life, we'll take whatever it can from us. And I think the reason that many people aren't satisfied with their goals is because they define goals that sound like good goals. When what really satisfies us are what I've called, started calling root goals. So I developed a process to get to these root goals because I realized I wasn't doing it because the couch is more comfortable than the climb, right? We are conditioned. There's a brilliant economist named Dan Kahneman who did some research and discovered that there are two types of ways that people think. Fast and slow. Fast is this system one thinking. Oh, that sounds good. I'll go do that. Oh, that sounds great. I'll go do that. But slow, this system two, this is more nuanced and more deliberate, more critical. And because of the speed of life, because of a myriad of reasons, each of us has our own, those fast goals are, are they're easier to set. And we see it in personal and we see it in professional. How many salespeople set a goal they don't actually give a damn about? But it shuts the boss up. Make, yep. It gets me to the next quarter, gets me to the next quota. If we were more deliberate and intentional and I think authentic about the goals that we set, we would ultimately find more fulfillment. And so what that might look like is to say, I want to, let's use professional since we're talking about that, right? A salesperson. I want to increase my sales next year by 10%. Follow that statement with the words, so that I can, and then fill in the blank. And there are some cynics out there who are going, so that I can keep my job. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fine. 
I want to keep my job so that I can blank. So that I can stay in my house. I want to stay in my house so that I can sit on the couch and watch Netflix. I want to sit on the couch and watch Netflix so that I can. We can keep this going and keep this going until we either get to a really inspiring or really uncomfortable answer. If you're not happy with the goal you arrive at, the good news is you have an opportunity to change it. Yep. But what happens most often is we stop because that gets uncomfortable. Because that's, I don't know if I could say this on your podcast, that's some real shit. Yeah, that's That's life. That's some real stuff that we have to talk about there. I did a really good job of avoiding the really real stuff for a really long time. And I found myself living a life where the thing I, the asset I loved about me most that I could use my voice in any number of circumstances to entertain, to enrapture, to engage, was taken from me. And someday we're all going to do something for the last time. I confronted that with my voice and I'm on a mission to help others do something they actually care about before they have to confront their last time. I love that statement that that's a great mission statement too. It's man, we can go so deep into this because that's something I'm through the podcast. I'm getting more and more people reach out to me. How do you do this? How are you doing this? You know, and it's, I get up every morning, I'm happy and I go after what I'm, what I want to do. But the other thing is I'm human too. I have pity parties. I fail. I get back up. But the one thing that I always look at, yeah, the one thing I look at is this. I get another day at life. I get another day at trying something new. Potentially, I always try to do something new every single day. And the other piece of it is if I'm not, if I don't succeed, it is okay to say, okay, let me step back. What went wrong? Do a debrief, but then get back up and go after it again. Don't listen to those critics that are sitting out there in the cheap seat saying, oh, look at you failed, blah, blah, blah. Because there's a lot of people say that. And guess what? They're doing that because they're not willing to try. They're not willing to put themselves out there to fail. And we listen to those people more than we listen to ourselves. And that's why a lot of people are stuck on the couch, as you say, watching Netflix. It's sad. It's the word that I can describe it when I hear some of these people's stories is depressing because they're letting their past control their present day. And then they're worried about the future and creates anxiety. And it's like, until you realize to live in that present moment right here, straight in front of you, you're not going to have peace. And then you're not going to be able to set yourself up for that life that you want to live. You want to live with purpose and passion. It's hard. And I struggle with that every single day, like anybody else. But the one thing I'm thankful for is I get another day to do it. I've got great people around me guests like yourself on the show that I get to have these great conversations with, but even better yet, loving family and friends that support me on my journey. They're there to thick and thin. That's a tribe to be calling your own, but looking out for. There's a, uh, there's a, an infographic. I don't know what to call it that I've seen. And it's got a guy digging down into the earth, right? So you can see a little bit of sky. You see the grass. You see a hole that goes straight down and then he's digging. So he's dug down and he's actually digging like to the left. And there's just a small piece of earth between him and this massive diamond. And a thought bubble says, I don't know where it is. I'm going to give up. 
Yep. So the point of the whole illustration is that we often give up when we feel like we've dug as deep as we can. And now we're just digging as hard as we can. And we feel like we've got nothing else left. We often give up right at that critical penetration moment or that critical mo aha moment, right? What I call Eureka. I'll be vulnerable and share that I'm still at the beginning of building this business. COVID was wonderful in a sense for me because it leveled the playing field. Even folks who had been speaking professionally for 20 years had no idea how to do this virtually. So I was there right in at the beginning, but I started in June of 20, and I'm really pleased and proud of the work that I've done and the clients that I've built partnerships with. I've got a long ways to go. And a month or two ago, I was having a very severe pity party to the point where I thought maybe I just peel back and dial back on this and do it part-time and get a corporate job because there's ebbs and flows mm -hmm. in the booking cycle. And I mean, I'm in a flow right now. Things are going really well right now. Several weeks ago, that was an ebb. And I, for whatever reason, maybe it's because I've got a two-year-old and another on the way and I start to feel the pressure of a two-kid household and all the demands that's going to have on my time. I was really having this just eat a pint of Haagen-Dazs and sit on the couch for a day or two kind of moment. That's okay. That it is isn't. natural. It's inhuman to not have that every once in a while. I think to your point, the skill we have to train in ourselves is to accept and just give ourselves a bit of compassion and grace and say, it's okay. It's yeah. okay to have that feeling. And hopefully people who are listening have friends and mentors and colleagues and people they can talk to when those feelings arise. Cause they're not, it's not easy to deal with them if you just keep them inside. Yeah. But those don't change with any level of success. I do not consider myself successful at this. Some people would from the outside. I've got a ways to go. But I know there are people down at a level looking up at me going, man, he's doing great. There are people that I'm looking up at going, man, they're doing amazing. We've all got something that we're aspiring to. And I know that when I get to those next levels, I'm still going to have days where I want the haagen and the couch and the pat on the butt that says, Gregory, it's going to be okay. That doesn't go away. I who, forget who said this, that the goal isn't to have less problems. It's to have better problems. Grant Cardone. He says it's uh, exactly to that, but then he goes on to a tangent that talks about you want to have better problems and new problems that challenge you to grow. And then that's in, I think that's out of his 10X book. I've read that book. I don't know how many times, but yes, I'm with you. And the funny thing is you're talking about being vulnerable. We're on a mission. So my day jobs are, I run an affordable housing slash workforce housing real estate development corporation. And we're at the point to where we develop infilled lots, but now we're being asked by cities to develop dirt, taking it from 14, 16 houses to hundreds of houses. Guess what? This guy knows nothing about dirt development, zero. And I've been on a struggle to find the right people to help us do that because part of the development will be done through a nonprofit that we have and the other part will be done through our for-profit. So there's some nuances there. And probably about four weeks ago, I thought I found two or three people and they end up being highway robbers. They literally wanted to charge us mm. hundreds of thousands of dollars just to have a conversation, not to do any work, not to do any planning, nothing whatsoever. And I, and for about a day and a half, I really struggled with that. And then all of a sudden my buddy says, Hey, have you heard about this website? It's called score.org. And it's basically a free website that's run by the department of urban housing development. And they connect you with mentors for free. And I'm like, shut the front door. That can't be, it can't be right. There's just no way. 
So I go on there. It's a bunch of retired people that are trying to help others do that. And from that, I've been connected with three people that this is even stranger. One of the people that I got connected to was a guest that's coming on my other podcast, Chasing Financial Freedom, and had no clue that he was tied into the real estate business or land development. Zero. Out of nowhere. And we had a conversation yesterday and I said, I have to tell you, his name's Michael. I said, Michael, I had no idea. One, I knew you were coming on my show because I see you booked. But I don't know how you getting booked on my show and me being connected through a score mentor, how that works. But the universe, God, whoever you believe in, man, was looking out for me. I was like, holy crap, that I was down on my luck saying, are we going to be able to get this going in 2023? Because that's our goal is to start developing in the first quarter. And there's been many months that I just, I didn't think I was going to make any headway whatsoever. And all of a sudden he pops out and over and goes, yeah, let's go through your pitch deck. Let's go through your process. Let's start working through all that. And I'm like, dude, put a smile on my face, put a little zip in my step. And I'm like, okay, that's not giving up. That's going after what you want to go after. But the other thing is, it's like you said, it's okay to have that haagen moment I call it pity party moment, um, but it's okay to feel that way, but figure out how to get back up. And that's where that image that you talked about, it's two guys, one guy's on the top and one guy's on the bottom. They're both digging to the right, I think. One is close to hitting that those diamonds you're talking about. The other one's just hitting dirt. It's okay to have that pity party, party or the haagen moment, but it's the point of getting back up and going. And we struggle with getting back up and going. Period. And the thing that creates the difference between the people who get back up and the people who don't, I believe, is the quality of that goal. Whether it's a good goal that sounds great to other people or whether it's a real goal you're actually connected with. Agree. There's also something else in there I think has helped me is being consistent and persistent. And consistent can be so many things in life, but being persistent of okay, you've got a goal. I'm looking on the other side of my camera and I've got this whiteboard and I've got six goals. They're very specific and they're time oriented and we're trying to hit some numbers. But at the end of the day, I'm not trying to lower my bar. That's one of the things I liked about Grant Cardone's 10X is he goes for the 10X factor. I don't typically look at the 10X factor. I look at a goal that is a stretch and I'm not gonna lower that goal just to say, okay, I achieved it. I put it out there. If I fail, I figure out how to make it next month. or next week or whatever I'm trying to do. But the goal's got to be big enough to where it pushes me out of my comfort zone, off of my couch and going after it. And one of the things that I'm opposite of you, I'm an operator and I've had to learn how to be a salesperson. And that has probably been my biggest struggle in entrepreneurship life is being a salesperson, going out there, putting myself out there for failure and being rejected. Because when I first started doing it eight years ago, it was personal to me. When someone rejected my, my pitch, I took it personal and it just destroyed me so many times, but I've learned over the years. Hey man, if you don't want to come on my journey, God bless you. I'm okay with it. But at the end of the day, you're missing out on something that's going to change lives. And it's also going to impact people, not just through your pocketbook, but in the long term. they get to, it's generational change. And when people hear that, all of a sudden it's, oh, I want to be part of this. It's just the way you pitch and the way you talk to people and the way you connect to them. Because ultimately, Everybody wants to make money. I get it. But you've got to have purpose and passion in there too. That's what's going to drive you to that money. It's in many ways, it's that acceleration curve. And I think of the Red Bull story. So forgive me if you've heard this, but 
Red Bull had a really unique marketing strategy when they first launched. They just made cans. They just made cans and they put them in waste baskets all over college campuses. And people started to see the cans and go, what's this? Then they'd go <laughs> buy the Red Bull. Fascinating, but that's, it's social proof and it's that acceleration curve. The ones other people see other people wanting that, they'll come back. So it's never no way. It's just not today. That was the, that's the mantra in sales. Yeah. And it's, I don't know how to describe it best is when I get a no and I, the old adage is you're just getting closer to a yes. I look at it as, like you said, it's not today, but the amount of people that I've pitched over the years, I would probably say 30 to 40% of them have come back around to where they're in our sales loop. They haven't completely invested yet, but they're bought into, okay, we see what you're doing, but that's become, that's because of the social proof we put out there through the projects we're doing and the people that we've partnered with. But my biggest challenge when I talk to people and so forth is, you, if you're going to be, if you want to truly be successful in anything you're doing is you've got to put it out there. And <laughs> I joke about it. I've hit my 250th episode on my other podcast. And I went back and looked at my first five episodes. My God, stink it up. Horrible. I don't, I'm embarrassed almost, but guess what? I kept on going and I've evolved and now I'm going to change this whole background that's behind me, different lighting. I'm going to start putting lighting up and it's just, it's taken time. But I'm okay with the journey, but I've not given up on it. And that's just something I preach and want to talk about. I can talk about all day is not giving up because if you give up on it, you're never going to get it. The most dangerous thing to, to build on your point, I think the most dangerous thing for any organization is to have the employee that left you yesterday, that went home right from work yesterday, come back tomorrow. What do I mean by that? I like that. If the person that left yesterday, isn't growing a little bit, changing, developing, improving in some way, little by little, day by day, that's a liability to an organization. So if the person you hired yesterday is the same person who walks in the door tomorrow, a problem. And that plays into a really fundamental desire human beings, really anything living, has for growth. We're designed to grow. From the minute we're born till the moment we die, our body is changing, we're growing. One of my favorite mentors in terms of inspirational mentors, Jim Rohn, used to say all the time, how high will a tree grow? As high as it can. What about a human? A little more disappointing. It's We're true. We're capable of so much, but that climb, it hurts a little bit. The couch is really comfy. I mean, it is. Any... Go ahead. Sorry. And I was just going to say, anybody who goes to the gym knows that. You can't build muscle without tearing it first. That's how muscle is built. When you lift weights, you're tearing the muscle and then you're rebuilding it. That's muscle growth. Every challenge, every change that I've encountered in work, in life, has hurt uh, in one way or another. Emotionally, not really physically often, but financially sometimes for sure. These, the, this growth is uncomfortable. And we are living in a society that encourages comfort, that makes comfort almost difficult to avoid yeah. in a way. It's almost tough to get away from comfort. And that's the challenge, I think, is to every day remind myself anyway, do something. My, my first coach would tell me, if it doesn't make you feel like you're going to throw up in a wastebasket, you're probably not pushing yourself hard enough in terms of a goal. Like, the first time she told me what to set my fee at for a speech, 
I remember I said, yeah, you know, I'll get there eventually. And she said, that's your fee now. And the first time I asked someone for that amount of money, I thought, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get sick. I can't ask this person for that. Or better, the, the first product that I, I sold, Cutco knives. Oh, And I cool. was in or something. And one knife was like $200. And a whole mm -hmm. set was like two, that, that may as well have been two million to me back then. And it's just like the thought of going to a stranger's house. And when they say, well, how much are these? I'd say two. I'm sorry. What was that? So two. They're like, what? Are you okay? Are you going to get sick? That, the idea of telling someone that's what it costs. Like, I thought they were going to chase me out of their house with a knife. But it turns out it's it, a lot of times it's the moment of growth is when we feel that discomfort. It, it's, it's crazy because you think about that. How long did it take you for that? for you to actually start asking for that fee for your speaking. Did you work your way up to it or you just ripped the bandaid off and <laughs> first client, boom, I'm asking for it. Yeah. I, the first speech I did was for a bottle of wine, but the second speech I did was for money and okay. I did ask for it and it was terrifying and we negotiated and it takes a little while to get comfortable. I think even seasoned speakers, sometimes if we really want a gig or some people call it standing tall in your fee, it's intimidating because people push back and they go, why are you worth that much money? You got to have an answer. You have to be able to justify what's the tangible outcome, the change, the transformation. What is it that I'm giving you this pile of money for to come and do for my audience? But you get, you get comfortable with that. Now, again, now it's new challenges. So I just, I just raised my fee. And I just sold a large multi-day program for more money than I've done before. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just saying that I was scared in that negotiation. I was feeling a little anxiety about the number I was asking for. But no, someone told a story about how this happens with cars, that we have like a dream car or a nice car that we want, and then we get it and we drive it and it's amazing and it's sexy and it's super great. And six months later, that's just the car in my driveway. No big deal. And it is that way. I, another thing I heard from a friend, he said, you want to know the best and the worst day in a man's life? I said, when? He said, the best day is when you make your first million. I said, what's the next best day? He said, or what's the worst day? He said, the day after. Because you realize that nobody cares. Yeah. Nothing changes. It's anticlimactic in a way. And that's with these growth goals. Like it feels awful. It feels nauseating. It feels tough. But then you get through it and you're like, oh, that was it. Bring it on. You grew the muscle. You built. And I'll just back up and go to something else. I want to go to, I want to continue this, but I want to back around because I got some ideas here. One of the things you talk about in, in, your speeches and so forth and growing and, and being hard to ask those fees. What are some tools or tips or tricks that you could share with people to help them grow in whatever they're trying to do to get them off the couch and be that climber? Yeah. I think going back to that idea of root goal analysis and deciding what it is you really want, getting to the root of what you want. I coached a guy so I was at an event and he came up to me afterwards and he said, we started talking. And so I started asking what he wanted to do. And I was asking about himself and he said, I just, I got to buy in the course of conversation. He said, just, I got to get this, I got to get this 30 apartment for, I'm trying to remember which, in which order he said it. I haven't shared this story in a little while. He either told me that he wanted to do more fly fishing with his grandson. Okay. And so he needed to get a 30 unit apartment building. Or he told me he needed to get a 30-unit apartment building. I think he told me about the building first. 
And then I started asking, well, do you have a background in real estate? What is it about the building? That's a very specific goal. That's awesome. Why is it, why 30 units? And he said, that's going to, that's going to provide me the income that I really need. And I said, oh, that said, and I said, and so when you get the income you really need, what'll happen? And he said, I'll go fly fishing with my grandson more. I said, yeah. He said, I'm just curious if I could help you find a way to go fly fishing with your grandson more that didn't involve buying a 30 unit apartment building, would you be interested? Because that sounds like a lot of work that you don't have a background in that you're not really excited about. But what you really want is to go fly fishing. We all have goals like that. Some people say, I want to go to the gym. Why? I want to look better in my clothes. What if you got a stylist? I'm all for physical fitness and say, maybe you just dress like crap. Maybe there's a, losing weight is hard. Getting a stylist, not so hard. Maybe there's a different answer. And so the root goal analysis would ask, I want to go to the gym so that I can lose some weight, so that I can look better in my clothes. Okay, we carry it on and on. I'm not trying to simplify something that probably is going to take an hour or two of somebody's time and several pages of paper. But yeah. the first step to making a change is a change that you want to make. What do you want? What do you want to make? If you're not clear on that, find another show on Netflix to binge because that's what the future looks like. And they have I a mean, hard that time. That sounds really crass, but like, I know it because I lived it. Until you find that change that your body and your mind, your reason for living, that you're burning to make, you're just not going to do it. And that's the sad part you talked about earlier, is that I see that in so many people. You can tell, yeah. you walk away from a conversation, it's like, they're really not going to do that. Just, so many people, I offer my phone number up. They don't call. Nope. I'll spend an hour with you. I'll work on whatever you want. They don't call. That's actually how I got my first coach, is I saw her at an event, super impressed, blown away by her. And she put her number up on the board. And she was like, y'all have questions? Call me. So I called. She answered. We talked for an hour. She didn't ask for a dime. I did that seven more times. She spent seven hours on the phone with me. Wow. And I'm the one who said, look, Donna, I feel like we should talk about what a relationship, like a coaching relationship would look like because you've given me a lot of free work here. And she's like, Greg, I'm glad you asked. And we had a, we had a phenomenal relationship during the time that we worked together. We still have a great relationship. She's not my coach anymore. It, it's really sad when people don't identify that thing that gets them excited. And that's one of the steps of taking the irk out of work is why are you here? You could be anywhere. And saying I need a paycheck is a BS reason. Like you don't need a paycheck per se. You have things and obligations that you've created for yourself, which require money. And so you've chosen a paycheck as the path to get that money, but you could start a business. You could rob a bank. You could sell <laughs> drugs. Don't sell drugs. But I'm just saying it's not the paycheck you need. It's money. There are lots of ways. That was a limiting belief for me that I needed a company to make money. And I realized that if 50, 50 people that I interview, all of them say their biggest problem is sales. They run their own business. My biggest asset is sales. I could probably do this myself. There you so go. it's these very attractive traps that we fall into about what we can and can't do. And it's because of that fast system that, yeah, that fast thinking, that system one thinking that Dan Kahneman talked about. That's really comfortable. Mm -hmm. Use your analogy, the couch or the climb. The climb is that difficult, slow, methodical system two thinking. And 
most people I meet want to avoid that. They go, oh, yeah, that sounds really nice. Do they do it? No, because it's uncomfortable. And it's, in a way, it's unnatural. It is. We're wired for instant gratification. That's why I talk about it is when you're on the couch, it's comfortable, it's easy. But then when you have to climb, you, you, that, that couch is, I put it as the 50-yard dash. The, ca- the climbing is a marathon. And you have to go after that marathon and it's over and it's beating you and it's hard. And you talk about putting your telephone number up. Part of our nonprofit is financial coaching. And a lot of these people have challenges with financial literacy and they're so embarrassed and they they don't want to do the work to get themselves so they can buy a house. I literally in our social posts through our nonprofit, I'll put up there, text me, call me or call us, text us, whatever, free of charge. Let's talk and figure out where you're at and we can help you. I get very few people that take me up on that. It's amazing how many people will not even reach out and say, hey, here's an opportunity to talk to somebody free of charge on your financial wellness and you won't step up and do it. It's, we could talk about this for hours of why we as humans fail moving forward in life and going after things that we love. My gosh, it's just, it's sad, but it's also reality. And to bring it back to work, That's eight hours of your reality. Yeah. If you're not there in service of something you really want, really want, I challenge you to make a different choice starting today. Because work shouldn't suck. Work should be the thing that allows us to create the change or the impact that we want to see in the world. It's how we solve problems profitably. Somewhere in our culture, it's become cool and pretty accepted to say that work sucks. And I remember my dad, who worked really hard to support our family, would say in the morning, I got to go to yucky work. When I was a little boy, like a toddler, I remember Mm -hmm. this vividly yucky work. It wasn't intentional. It wasn't malicious on his part, but... And you hear that enough and you go, all right, I guess work is yucky. I guess work sucks. How do we create a culture where people look forward to work because it allows them to solve a problem they're passionate about, that they're interested in? It allows them to feel like the way they're spending their time is meaningful, has purpose, has value. And from solving that problem, they profit. And put the time and effort in, and it goes a long ways. It's tough. When I say tough, I, it's and not. We gotta wrap, it, it, when I say tough, it's I mean it's, tough. it's it's work. Yeah, you've got to you've got to put the time and effort into it. And just like anything else, and I apologize, tough is the wrong word, but it's putting the energy into it. And I think we've lost that energy aspect, and I don't know why. And we could go. I like I said, we can keep on going and going, but we're at the top of the hour, so we're going to have to wrap this sucker up. How could we get a hold of you? How can people reach out to you and talk to you if they needed to talk to you? Yeah, my website is gregoryoffner.com. It's uh, the easiest place to find me. You can call okay. me from there. You can email me from there. The socials I'm on most often these days are Instagram and Twitter. So at Gregory Offner, Jr. for Junior, at Gregory Offner, Jr. Reach out, get in touch. Let me know what's on your mind. Let me know what you thought of the episode, what you agree with, what you disagree with, what your favorite food is in Pennsylvania. <laughs> I, we can talk about anything. <laughs> Well, sir, thank you for coming on. It's been an honor. It's been a great conversation. And thank you for being open and transparent and sharing your journey because that will inspire 
as I say, at least one person to get off the couch and stop binging Netflix and become that climber in life. It's been a blast, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Thank you, sir.